verses 35 through 39. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. I'm thrilled not only by your presence here this morning, but also knowing that there are others who are joining us online. So whether you are here or uh, watching a screen somewhere, we're delighted that you have joined us for our worship service this morning. I also want to remind you that this is Fundamental Sunday. We're barely into May, but this is the first Sunday of May. And so uh, by way of a reminder to those of you who may be visiting... On the first Sunday morning of each month, I try to present some lesson that is exactly what it sounds like. It's fundamental in nature, having to do with our salvation, what to do to be saved, or something about the nature of the church, its organization and worship, and those kinds of things. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes this morning. Ray also said something in, our, in, uh, in the announcements about our, our worship service that takes place here at five o'clock uh, this afternoon. Uh, let me remind you that that is not intended to take the place of any of our other small groups. If you are already a part of a small group and you're uh, gathering in someone's home uh, later today or some other point in the week, then we would encourage you to continue to do that. But if you're not a part of a group and you would like to be and can come and worship with us at five o'clock, we would be absolutely delighted to have you here. Someone has made the observation, and I believe it's true. This is not Bible, but it is common sense. That how you start has a good, uh, a, a large portion to do with how you end up. That's certainly true in a race. If you stumble out of the blocks, then you're probably over for that particular race. It's true in the field of logic. It has been said appropriately that if you began with a false premise, you will end with a false conclusion. And that is true every single time. It's true in the pursuit of an education, many times true in business. It can well be true in the establishing of a congregation of God's people. It's true in marriage, and it's also true in the Christian life, as we'll see. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to begin. But I hope that you will have your, uh, you know, you'll, you'll lick your thumb or whatever you need to do to turn pages. Or don't do that to your screen. That would be messy. But uh, whatever you're doing, please turn to Acts chapter 8 or stay there. Because I want us to speak for just a few minutes this morning on the subject of starting right. And quite frankly, I, I think we all are in agreement that some folks have not started right religiously, and as a result, they are not presently going in the direction that they uh, had thought that they would be going, and certainly that they want to go. Some haven't yet obeyed what the Lord teaches about how to start their walk with the Lord by being baptized in, in the, for the right reasons in the right way. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider Acts the 8th chapter. I know this is material that is familiar to most of you, 
but that ought to enhance our appreciation for the lesson this morning. In Acts the 8th chapter is uh, where James just read. I want to back up a few verses, starting with verse 26. We're not going to be reading all of this, but you can appreciate that starting in verse 26 is where Dr. Luke is recording this by inspiration, and he's kind of telling us the mechanics of the situation. That is how Philip came to be in a place where he could share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And we also learn early on that the Holy Spirit is the one who commissioned uh, Philip to go and to teach to the Ethiopian eunuch. So this is a this is a divine assignment. This is a visitation card that the Holy Spirit himself has given to Philip. And he said, I want you to go and join yourself to this man who was traveling, by the way, in his chariot. And so that's, that's where we are down until about verse 34. And the Bible says that as, as he's teaching him, as they're, as they're discussing the scriptures, and it begins with uh, Philip asking him as he, as he sees the man reading from the scriptures, do you understand what you're reading? And his reply is very logical. He said, how, how can I except some man should guide me? I need, I need some help. I need to know who it is that Isaiah, and he's reading from Isaiah 53. I, I need to know who he's talking about. And so that's exactly where Philip begins, in the place that the man already has an interest in. Look at verse 34. So, so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this, himself or of some other man? Who is Isaiah talking about here? In this messianic prophecy, he does not understand. Now, James already read this, but look at it a little more closely, if you will. Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Look at verse 39. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, that is the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. Please notice that Philip, if you back up all the way to the beginning of this chapter, specifically verses 5 through 8, that, that Philip was taken away from a great revival in Samaria to talk to just one man. That tells you something, does it not, about the value of the human soul. Here he was preaching perhaps in a mass campaign in Samaria. But the Holy Spirit says, I've got a man I want you to talk to. It's just one individual. And so he calls him away from that great revival to come and talk to the eunuch. Now I love this in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, the text says, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus unto him. Notice what Philip did not talk about. He did not preach about Ethiopian politics. He did not talk about the economy. He did not talk about any of those matters. He didn't talk about Ethiopian uh, uh, current affairs. He, he preached Jesus to him is what the text says. And then as a natural result, as they were going along the road, the Bible says the man apparently began to look for water because somewhere in teaching Jesus, water had to have been mentioned or else he would not have been on the lookout for it. And that tells you something about what preaching Jesus entails. Not just the man. He didn't just preach about Jesus, but he also talked about the plan. That is what you need to do in order to get right with this Jesus, who in fact is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now there's a sense of urgency, at least as I read the text, about the statement that he makes beginning with verse 34. 
And he says, see, here's water. What does hinder me from being baptized? Oftentimes, when I've preached on this particular text, I have pointed out that this is the soul winner's dream. Here's a man who recognizes what he needs to do in order to get right with God. And he's the one who's asking to be baptized. There's no closing of the sale. There isn't any point where Philip has to twist his arm or giving some closing arguments in order to get him in the water. No, he's the one who says, no, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, let's not minimize what the Bible has so powerfully emphasized. How did Jesus begin his public ministry? Well, it was by being baptized himself. And how did Jesus end his public ministry? By commanding that all people everywhere be baptized for the remission of their sins. According to Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, that's Mark's rendition of the Great Commission. You know, it's vitally important that, that we look at the Bible. So, so get ready again to turn some pages and let's look together at what God has to say on this vital subject. The first question I want us to consider simply this. What is the biblical method of baptism? That, that is exactly what was it that this man experienced that day when he said, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, we know something about what took place because the text gives us some clues. Look at verses 36 through 38 once again. The biblical method of baptism is by immersion. That is placing a person under the water and then bringing that person up out of the water. And why that is the case, we'll talk about in just a moment. But please note that the text actually says that they both went down into the water. And they both came up out of the water, again, verses 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 8. Now, if, if you look at John chapter 3, but let me back up for just a moment to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. That jibes what we're studying, jibes with the record of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. Because in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says in verse 10, that when Jesus came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord descended on him in the form of a dove. You know the passage. And so what happened to Jesus when he was baptized is the exact same thing that is happening here with the eunuch as he's being baptized. After the baptism takes place, he comes up out of the water. That's important. And I want you to put that over in the corner of your mind for a moment. You might also want to consider John chapter 3 verse 23. The Bible says this about the work and the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, John was also, this is John the Baptist being spoken of, was also baptizing in Enon near Salem. And then it gives us the reason. Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. So they came to where John was baptizing near, near Enon, Mark says. Not because of the scenery. Not because it was more convenient. Not even because it was closer but because in, of the availability in an otherwise arid region of having water. And not just water, but much water. We understand that it takes a lot of water to baptize a person. And people have gone to great lengths to, to submit themselves to this ordinance, this commandment of God. In fact, Jesus, the geography tells us that Jesus walked as far as 60 miles just to be baptized by John. We know of people who've been baptized in swimming pools at Bible camp or maybe in a, in a whirlpool in the hospital or in scraped out mud holes in third world countries. Mark it down. It's not always easy to make it happen, to be baptized, to be immersed in water, but it is always necessary. 
Now, in most of these cases, it would have been a lot easier just to have had somebody sprinkle or pour some water on your head and say, okay, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're done with it. You don't have to go through all of this inconvenience in order to make that happen. But it would not have been biblical. By the way, a quick uh, Greek grammar lesson, and this is all that I can give you. I, I think it's interesting and important to note that the word baptize in our New Testament, in our English versions, comes from a Greek word, baptizo. In the original language, it, it's, it's a very similar word to the one that we find here in our English Bibles. And, it's, and, it, and it means, in, in the original version, it means to plunge, to dip, to immerse, to, to, to actually take one under the water. And the reason for this, at least according to what I've researched, was back in 1611 when the King James Version was translated. The scholars who did the translating from the original text were afraid to translate baptizo as immerse. Why? Because it violated the king's religion. He was the one who had commissioned the version. And so said, they said, we, don't want, to, we won't, don't want to disturb the king. And so what we'll do is just transliterate this word and we'll change it from baptizo to baptism because they're very similar. That will allow flexibility and will allow for people to determine and render that any way they want to. Down through the centuries, they have done exactly that. The word, however, means immerse. It means to plunge under the water. Now, there's another Greek word for sprinkle you might be interested to know. And another Greek word for pour. Neither of those words are the words that are found in this text. This word baptizo means to dip, to dunk, or to immerse. Here's a second consideration that we need, I think, to, th to think about and also to apply in our own lives, but also as we're trying to plant the seed of God's word in the hearts and the lives of others. And that's the method of baptism. And, and, and the question obviously should be raised, why is that important? Why 2,000 years past the, the account when we're, that we're reading about in Acts chapter 8, why is it important that we have the method of baptism correctly and biblically? Why should we care about that? And the reason is because the method is inextricably wrapped up in the meaning of this word. The, the method and the meaning, I'm saying, are interwoven. They're, they're tied together, and you can't change the method of baptism or the mode of baptism without also destroying the meaning. And here's what I mean by that. If you try to make baptism anything other than a burial in water, then you're destroying the very symbolism, the spiritual symbolism of baptism as it's used in Scripture. When you say that baptism either isn't necessary or that it isn't necessarily immersion, I would encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 6 as we verify that very fact. In Romans chapter 6, as Paul begins the writing of chapter 6 and verses 1, of course, that's where most chapters begin, in verse 1, picture, here's pictured your past, your present, and your future. Now, now that requires some explaining, but, but stay with me for just a moment. Let's first read verses 1 through 5. There was some argument, some discussion apparently among Roman believers that if God's grace covers our sin, then it just makes sense, doesn't it, for us to sin more, therefore to allow God's grace to more greatly abound. That's not logical, it's not reasonable, but that's the way some people were trying to justify sin in their lives. So he begins with that question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who... 
die to sin, live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? File that away. That's important. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if, conditional, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, if you didn't get all of that on the first go-through, there's some uh, understanding, I think, there's some uh, explanation that's required to be able to fully appreciate what it is that Paul is saying. First of all, he talks about our past. That's made clear in verse 6. The old person of sin, Paul says, has died, and it's being buried in the watery grave of baptism. So our, our burial in water, our baptism, is really symbolic of, of a burial when we go to the graveyard and put somebody in the ground. But this time, it's the old man of sin who's being buried. That old man who did whatever he or she wanted, who sinned at will, who was not the least bit concerned about God's will, probably didn't even know or acknowledge God, that's the man of sin that's being buried, Paul says. Now, if I died and you haul me out to the graveyard and you put a few grains of dirt on my head, whatever you were doing, you would not be burying me. We understand what burial is. We are buried with Christ in the act of baptism. By the way, Paul verifies that again in Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 where he refers to baptism as a burial. And when we do that, our sin is buried in the grave of God's forgetfulness. In Hebrews 8 verse 12, our God has said, your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So when the old man of sin is buried and the new man is raised, God says, I am wiping everything that you've done to this point from my book of memory that is no longer laid against your charge. No wonder the gospel is called the good news. So your sin will be washed away and your guilt is gone. That's our past. But then Paul discusses our present, and that's mentioned specifically, look at verse 4. We come out of the water to walk, Paul says, in newness of life. I probably don't have to tell this intelligent audience that every reasonable person at some point in his or her life has probably gotten to the point where they have messed up a particular situation or maybe their whole life so badly that they say to themselves, or maybe even to others, I wish I could just start over. And that's exactly what this conversion process allows us to do. The old man of sin is buried in the watery grave of baptism. The new man, the brand new creature, arises from that grave to walk, Paul says, in newness of life. And that's, that's how we come out of the water. Your present is being described here by Paul by inspiration. Now, when I obeyed the gospel, I reenacted the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord. And when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 3, I find out that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the very foundation of the gospel message. Well, guess what? When we're baptized, we are reenacting all three of those items. We're being buried. We're being raised. All of that is important because the old man of sin has died. That's what's going in the water. So when I was buried in baptism, I didn't stay in the grave of baptism, just as Jesus did not stay in the tomb. Now watch this. Christians are not just nice people. Christians are brand new creatures. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So because you and I have been born again, we have this new life in Christ. Your past is buried along with the old man of sin. Your present is raised to walk in newness of life in Christ, where all spiritual blessings are, Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 3, having then made free, be made free from sin. And then thirdly, Paul talks about our wonderful future. That's discussed in verse 5. In biblical baptism, you and I are resurrected with Christ. You don't stay in the water. You don't stay in the grave if you're a child of God. You know, one of these days, I'm going to die. And they can bury me physically, but the grave that couldn't hold Jesus will not be able to hold me or you either. And that too is good news. The same God that raised him up will raise us up. If you and I identify with Jesus on this side of the grave in baptism, Paul says, then he will identify with us on the other side. I don't have to tell you, that's wonderful, wonderful news. To know that when we're baptized, it's not just a ritual that we're going through. And it isn't just, despite what some teach, a demonstration to the world that I now belong to Jesus, although it is that, but that's not all it is. It is a reenactment of Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. And that's Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 6, specifically verses 1 through 5. Let me mention three biblical reasons why we should be baptized the way the Bible prescribes. First, it is because it is a proclamation of our commitment to Jesus Christ. You know, becoming a Christian is a commitment of loyalty, even more so than exchanging vows in a wedding ceremony is a commitment of fidelity. When you're baptized, you're declaring, I belong to Jesus. I am entering into this relationship. I am now a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Master. It is a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, it's also, the Bible teaches, at the point of conversion at which the remission of our sins are granted. We don't have to wonder about at what point are all of my sins washed away. Paul says we're buried with Christ in baptism. There, that's, that's where we contact his blood. And his blood is what redeems us from our sins. That's borne out by reading verses uh, 16 through 18. Watch this carefully. If you've got your Bible, follow along. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Paul wants these people to understand that this is a responsibility, an obligation, but also a great privilege. That when you become a child of God, when you are reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord in baptism that uh, you are no longer going to be serving sin. You're now going to be serving a new master. Look at verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were, past tense, were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. At what point was it that we were no longer slaves dominated by the power of sin? We are now slaves to Jesus Christ. It was at the point 
where we reenacted his death, burial, and resurrection in our baptism. That's where we contact his blood. That's where we made free from sin. And that's borne out by this passage. When these Romans were made free from sin, the moment they obeyed, not a, a moment sooner or a moment later, that squares with what those people on the day of Pentecost experienced as well. When they said, what should we do? When they were convinced by Peter and the other apostles that they were the ones responsible for killing the Messiah. Peter's response was very clear. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You may remember that Saul was told by Ananias in Acts 22, verse 16, Why do you, are you tearing? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I think Saul understood from what Ananias had replied to him that it was at the moment that he was washing away his sins was at the moment that he was baptized. Now listen to Jesus in giving the Great Commission in Mark 16, verse 16. We referenced this passage earlier, but I want us to read it as we end this study. He who believes, these are the words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves will be condemned. Here's a third reason for being baptized the way the Bible prescribes, because it is a command to be obeyed. In the Bible, baptism is not merely a suggestion. It is not a request. It's a requirement. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. One final observation, and I try to end with a consideration of this one verse anytime I preach on this passage. Look, if you will, at verse 39 of Acts chapter 8. Sincere obedience is always followed by joy and peace. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, that is the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. You know, the intelligent mind doesn't have to ask why that man was rejoicing that day. We know it was because before he met Philip and before he obeyed the gospel and was baptized in the waters of baptism, he was lost. But now he's saved and he's heaven bound. And so as that chariot takes him around the next curve and for the rest of his life, that man goes on his way rejoicing because now he's a child of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you've obeyed heaven's conditions of pardon, I want you to know that there's a mansion right now in heaven with your name already on the mailbox. And if you have not yet obeyed what the Bible teaches about being baptized into Christ and being added to the Lord's spiritual kingdom, his church, then you can have a, a box in heaven with your name on it before this hour is over. Because every one of us has the same opportunity and the same privilege of obeying the gospel just as that eunuch did. Folks, if you feel that noble impulse straining within your heart, I pray that you will not restrain it, but that you will submit to it. Do what you know is right and what God's word has told you to do and do it now while we stand and while we sing to encourage.